to Ethics and the Naval Warrior. I'm your host, Michael Sears. My guest has been with the Stockdale Center for 14 years. He earned his PhD from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. He coaches the Ethics Debate Team at the Naval Academy and, among other things, teaches a course called Philosophy at the Movies. Welcome, Dr. Sean Baker. Mike, thank you. Very glad to be here. Uh, I think this is a a wonderful uh, thing you're doing for the Academy and for Midshipmen. Sean, it's great to have you here today, and I've been waiting for this uh, session. We're going to focus on the paradox of happiness, and frankly, we're going to focus on a film called Groundhog Day from 1993. If I remember right, it's all about a jerk of a weatherman named Phil who finds himself reliving Groundhog Day every day. Can you fill in the rest of that? Yes, that is exactly right. He is somebody that is very, I won't quite say bitter, but cynical bordering on bitter about his career. He's in a small market and he thinks his talent is so great that he should be in a larger market. You see that very early on in the film. So he is sent to cover the Groundhog Day festivities in Punxsutawney from Pittsburgh for the fourth or fifth time. I can't remember. And he despises the job and considers the uh, people that he's uh, working with to be rubes. (laughs) He also considers the people in the town to be, uh, he even says it this way at one point, hicks. So he's got a very low opinion of humanity, you might say. I've got a ton of questions here. The primary one is, is it that the woodchuck sees a shadow and that means six more weeks of winter or, well, that's not the important <laughs> part. Let's jump into the meat of this thing. Tell me what this all means about the pursuit of happiness. Well, I think it tells you this. It's a good illustration of the paradox of happiness, which essentially says the more you self-consciously set about uh, pursuing happiness or fulfillment of pleasures or things like that, the more unlikely it is you will actually acquire it. And you see that with Phil in the film, once the repetitious experience starts, you know, he's reliving Groundhog Day over and over again, by some estimates, 30 or 40 years. But uh, once he gets over the stage of thinking he's just going nuts or very despondent that he won't be able to escape it, he starts seeing the possibilities in terms of getting things that would... um, uh, pleasure him, right? So he, he'll spend a great deal of time. Uh, and, it, and there's one great scene where he's in the diner eating a lot of food. So this takes us back to some Aristotelian stuff, right? Yes. Thing is, at first, his almost exclusive focus on the pursuit of pleasure. At first, he enjoys it. But there is one kind of target of his efforts that he consistently cannot acquire, and that's his producer, Rita. You see early in the film, there's something more of a connection between him and her than the cynical Phil would probably want to admit. And he wants her, but he, he wants her more than just a sexual conquest. Um, I think that's kind of apparent from what goes on. So you're talking about the diner. He can eat all the waffles he wants. He can drink all the milkshakes and coffee he wants, but he can't get what he really, really wants, which is Rita. Yes. And he tries over and over. He he takes advantage of the power he has 
and being able to repeat the same day over and over again. I mean, that's Plato in the Ring of Gyges, right? Well, what he does is he accumulates a great deal of knowledge about Rita, what she likes, what she did in school. Her desire for world peace is actually one that they talk about. But he collects all of this information and he thinks, man, you know what I can do here is I can create, quote, the perfect day and get Rita. But it's not just get Rita as a sexual conquest. It's get her affection or her love. And he tries over and over again, learning more and more details about her likes, her wants, her personality traits, and so forth. But every time he tries to seal the deal, so to speak, and have her come upstairs to his bed and breakfast, she slaps him because she sees through it. She sees what he's doing. But the key thing is here, at that point, he becomes very despondent and suicidal. But by that point also, he's actually done a great deal of, for lack of a better term, self-improvement. He has learned how to play the piano. He learns the French language because she likes French poetry. So you see him having done that same sort of recon on other people in the town. And slowly he develops. It, it's not quick, but slowly he starts developing an appreciation for those people. Thanks to the highly repetitive nature of the cycling. So tell me what the pivot point was in this show. He was accumulating all this knowledge, but... He was accumulating that knowledge for uh, malicious means, for malicious goals. Uh, he wasn't trying to do the right thing. Yeah. It was primarily to get Rita. That was the goal he had in mind. But you, you see that over the course of time, and it might have even been, been also just to alleviate boredom, he, he learns a great deal about everybody in that town. But that pivot point is when he fails with Rita in that, that subtle or very thoroughgoing manipulation, I should say. And he, like I said, he goes suicidal, but then he falls back on the things he has learned about not just the people in the town, but his own development in all those ways I described earlier. So you see him change. He starts using that accumulated knowledge now to serve the other people in the town. And, and there's a very crucial scene where he actually leaves Rita after doing the Groundhog Day event for the five millionth time. He says, I've got some errands to run. And you see the errands all having to do with saving lives, helping two women that have a flat tire, two older women in the town. After he becomes almost completely selfless, he says something in the concluding scene of the film. It's kind of hard to hear because he is kind of whispering it, but he, he says, you know, I don't care what happens. I'm content right now. He's accepted. Uh, it's something Friedrich Nietzsche calls the uh, love of fate. It seems like he's accepted his fate of reliving the day over and over again. And he will actually be satisfied with repeating that last perfect day where he serves others and he loves the town of Punxsutawney. He's done a total turnaround. He loves all the people there. He's become very familiar with them and he's willing to live that next day uh, as yet another Groundhog Day. 
wakes up that next day, hears the same song on the radio. Uh, I got you, babe. And seems like he'd be happy with it. But guess what? He's been released from the cycle at that point. Rita is there with him. And he has attained happiness at that point, not by self-consciously pursuing it, but by losing himself in service to others. So, Sean, tell me this. What lessons does this have? One of the lessons is, I think it's a, it is fiction. You got to keep this in mind. But I think it's a very powerful illustration of Aristotle's point that we're social animals. It's really not possible for us to be happy unless we are plugged into our social matrix and doing for others. I think that's there. But on a more personal and immediate level, I, I think we can all recognize in Phil's situation aspects of our own life that are just like this. We all are very much creatures of habit, and we have schedules we follow from day to day, and may be easy to become, if not bored and cynical and uh, unhappy about it, it. It nevertheless can be challenging to find ways to deal with the repetitive nature of our day-to-day life. And I think the lesson is to as it were, dive more deeply into our day-to-day life and realize the richness that is afforded us in our opportunity to interact with and serve others. And it really is that service, that practice, as Aristotle would say. That's how you can get more enjoyment out of your life. Yes. And once again, you kind of forget yourself in the process. And just by doing, uh, you get the happiness. (laughs) but without aiming for it. I think that's, yeah, I I really think that's the primary lesson of this film. Films are kind of a rich pop culture. They're a very rich ground for exploring philosophical topics, I think because uh, they tap into an old philosophical tradition of having illustrating stories or thought experiments that you can uh, uh, utilize to explore what can sometimes be very abstract concepts. And Sean, with that note, it's probably a perfect time to talk about this new podcast that you're just about to embark on. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. It's called Philosophy at the Movies. And give us a couple words on that. Yeah, uh, it's an outgrowth of the course I teach. I teach a a course of that same title. And uh, what we will be doing is episodes similar to this one. Uh, We will be examining films that have ethical and philosophical content and relating them to philosophers and philosophical concepts. Sean, that's going to be great. Thanks a lot for joining me today. And I am looking forward to listening to Philosophy at the Movies. All right. Okay. Thanks, Mike. It's been great. You've been listening to Ethics in the Naval Warrior, produced by the Boeing Leadership Innovation Lab at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. You can find more of our podcasts by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu.